thick of Advent, and um, you know, I was brought up as an evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal guy, and the only thing I ever got excited about was what was spontaneous. And sometimes when it came to even praying the Lord's Prayer or anything that seemed to have some degree of ritual to it, it threw me. Because I thought it's too confining. I want to be free, you know, and just flow with the ghost. Uh, you know, I just wanted ghost stories, holy ghost stories. And uh, it was a bit of a, a trick in my own head for me to understand that really ritual can be a springboard for life. That it doesn't have to be dead. That like a trellis in a garden, you know, it's just dead wood. But if it's placed in the right place, life can grow on it better than if the life, if the trellis wasn't there for life to grow on it. In fact, if you have vines that don't have a trellis, they become stilted and don't grow nearly as well. But if you can put them in the right place, life can really flourish. And so I remember discovering, praying the Lord's Prayer, which is just a repeating prayer, but throwing my heart into it and realizing that I can flourish in spontaneity within the context of the ritual. And then I would think of things like birthdays. How many of you like birthdays? They're awesome, man, because it's that day they celebrate you, light a cake on fire, give you gifts. How can anything be better than that? Right? You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, they sing that song to you, and it's, they, they remember you on that day that's just like every other day, but it's not. It's something more than that day because you were born on that day. And those, those kind of rituals help us to attach to more than the mundane, attach to something beyond what is at the moment, to make the moment bigger. And so I think that, that what we need to encourage each other, particularly those of you that are brought up in a more spontaneous spirituality, is that things like Advent and Lent, Trinity Sunday, you know, praying the Lord's Prayer, coming to the Eucharist, don't let those things become rote to you. Don't let them at face value just be, well, that's just dead stuff, ritual. Instead, use it as a springboard for life and say, God, as I say this for our Father, who art in heaven, I declare this creed, I believe in God, that somehow you throw your heart into it and bring the mysticism of life and the open, you know, like if, you know, wouldn't it be a drag if people came to you and brought a case of have birthday to you, happy birthday, you know, you know, don't you like when somebody throws their stuff in, their heart and their gusto into the deal? See, that's what we want to do in these times. So, so here we are in this midst of, of, of the season of Advent. Let me nudge you capture let this capture you a little bit it's a season between thanksgiving and christmas it's the season that the church has historically celebrated and set aside the time to ponder the coming of the lord advent means appearing so it's this idea and there are two central advents two central appearances that we focus on his first appearing is when god became flesh and dwelt among us, it's the whole Christmas story. And the second advent that we focus on is the promise that Jesus Christ will come again. He will appear again. And entering somehow into the hope of that and to the, into, into the expectation of that, uh, it, it, it causes something to happen inside our souls that, is, that causes flourishing. In this season, we're to intentionally meditate on the, the idea that God somehow wants to appear to us. 
that he wants to be near us. It can be a season where we learn to cultivate an expectation of that nearness, right? In John 1, John writes, in the beginning was the word. This is talking about the first advent. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, but more than that, the word was God. It's a little confusing language, but the reality is God is ineffable. In other words, you can't really describe him, so you have to throw a bunch of words that kind of make you go, whoa, because <laughs> there's mystery here. So in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, but the word was also God. And he was with God in the beginning through him, all things were made without him. Nothing was made that has been made in him was life. And that life does something to people. It lights them up. The light shines in dark places, but the darkness doesn't always understand it. And then in verse 14, he says, but this word that was with God and is God got flesh on it. It became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This, this is the heart of the Advent story. God makes his dwelling among us. In other words, God comes near to us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, our whole story that we are part of, this Christian story, it starts in the Eden narrative in Genesis. And in that story, human life was being lived out within the proximity of God. They saw God and God was with them and God would give them, inter, you know, interacted with them, give them direction. In fact, we, a little snippet of it is Genesis 2. It says, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the earth. He brought them to the man interaction to see what he would name them. See, whether this Genesis account is literal, what is metaphorical is, is of little import. The message here is clear. There was once a nearness between God and human beings that was lost when sin sort of slithered its way into the human experience. And the message of Advent is God found a way to bring back his nearness. To come to be actually where we are, that we don't have to find a way to him, he's found a way to, to us. On that first Christmas night, it says of the angels in Luke 2, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they're freaking out a little. And the angel said to them, just don't be afraid. I bring you some good news of great joy. That's for everybody. Everybody gets in on this. Today in the town of David, the Savior has appeared. Advent has come. It's the Savior who had been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, and suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. You remember that it was the angels who were responsible in the Genesis account to push Adam and Eve out of God's presence, out away from the tree of life and to guard the tree of life. Humans were pushed outside of that face-to-face -face encounter with God. But on the first Christmas, angels are singing a different tune. <laughs> They're basically saying, hey, you guys, you know how sin locked you out of God's presence? You know, there's been no face-to-face -face hang time with God. You haven't seen him. There's no tree of life, lots of death. Well, tonight that all changes, is what they're saying. God has come to you. The Savior is here and has fallen human beings. We, we, 
we lost our access to the tree of life, but somehow the tree of life was embodied by God himself and it came to us. He comes to us. Jesus is the living tree of life that gives us a face-to-face with God again. This is what the Christmas story is all about. It's the tree repackaged in the person of God. (laughs) And it means that God is accessible again. It means that life is accessible again to the human race. Matthew said, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is talking about incarnation. Incarnation is a fancy word for the idea that God has wrapped himself with flesh, that he got inside the human experience, that God has become part of us. Greek Orthodox theologians say that this is the way we can experience grace in our souls, inside our human experience, inside our human bodies, that God has found a way to get inside the human context and that he's present. That's why he can be present with us as we worship or present with us, even when we're going through suffering or disappointment, he's always present with us because he found a way in to the human life. This is why we can say the Eucharist is sacred, that God found a way to get inside temporal, physical stuff, inside the bread, inside the cup, that that somehow it's incarnation and it's surprising and it's unexpected, right? Now there's a second advent that we're called to expect, not just that first one that we reflect on and how they expected it before it came it's in Acts 1, and after, the scripture says, after Jesus had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and into a cloud hid from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the skies he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, and angels again show up. Angels are always present at Advents. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. In the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So the biblical claim is clear, not just here, but in multiple places. Jesus is coming back. St. Cyril, who wrote this in the 300s, he says this, Quote, we do not preach only one coming of Christ, but a second as well, much more glorious than the first. The first coming was marked by patience. The second coming will bring the crown of a divine kingdom. At the first coming, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths, clothes in a manger. At his second coming, he will be clothed in light as in a garment. In the first coming, he endured the cross. In the second coming, he will be in glory, escorted by an army of angels. This is why the faith we profess has been handed on to you with these words. And he quotes out of the creed. Now remember, this is in the 300s. This is how ancient this creed we say is. It's been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. There will be an end, he writes, to this world and the created world will be made new, end quote. You know, when I first uh, had an encounter with Jesus, I, uh, I was 14 years old and I hung around with a group that talked a lot about the return of Jesus. We, in fact, were pretty OCD about it. We just always talked about it. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming, maybe this weekend, right? 
And we used to pass out these fake newspapers that had the headlines on it. Christ returns. It was supposed to be like the day after Jesus came and we're passing out these newspapers. Thousands of them we passed out, which is crazy because our old town was only 1,800 people. But the point is, I'm not kidding. But anyway, people got repeats. We were sure his return was close, certainly within the next year or two. That's why most of us thought, well, let's not even go to college. Let's just preach, get out there on the streets. I mean, that's what we did. Well, he didn't come back by the weekend. <laughs> not even two or three, that was 40 years ago, right? See, as far back as you, can, you care to go historically, you can find preachers who pound their fists on the pulpit declaring that Jesus is going to return in their day and in their time. When Revelations was written, which was a long time ago, we read in Revelation 22, 20, listen to it. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Now, I don't know what you think when you think soon, but soon means something different than 2000 years ago in my mind. <laughs> and yet there it was. The idea of soon doesn't seem to fit into what's being proffered here, but yet he said, I'm coming soon. But maybe that's the point. I mean, what if Jesus could come at any time. What if, uh, I mean, what if the fact is that, that, that the idea that he could come at any time should inform our lives? Every generation, every group should think he could come now. I think the problem comes here in, is when we start trying to figure out exactly what it is. And, and many of you, if you haven't been in the church for very long or in this part of the church, I mean, there was, there was, there's a lot of people that I grew up around that I used to listen to that would take this, these opaque kind of verses of scripture about the end times that, you know, seemed as clear as mud to me, but yet it seemed so clear when they said it. And then they'd bring the, you know, the Jerusalem post next to it and, sh and almost like reading tea leaves would tell you what's coming. <laughs> right. And uh, sure with absolute certainty. And then when things changed and it didn't happen in the timetable which they said they unapologetically sort of changed their their uh, interpretation like a weatherman changes the forecast right i don't think this is whatever right so so i i, I but what if what if everyone is supposed to have the sense he could come at any time and that's what god is after that's why jesus said no one knows the time or the hour uh, but it's in my father's heart. This is another quote from the 300s, I think is appropriate here. This was from St. Ephraim, who was a Syrian. And he says, quote, to prevent his disciples from asking the time of his coming, Christ said, about that hour, no one knows, neither the angels nor the son. It is for you to know, it is not for you to know times or moments. He has kept these things hidden so that we may keep watch, each of us thinking that he will come in our own day. If he had revealed the exact time of his coming, his coming would have lost its savor. It would no longer be an object of yearning for the nations and the age in which it actually happens. He promised that he would come, but did not say when he would come so that all generations and all ages will await him eagerly, end quote. Pretty smart for someone in the 300s that didn't have an iPhone. <laughs> so here's, a, here's another sort of provocative question that I think needs to be asked by us in the Advent, who are in this Advent season. 
is we should ask the question, okay, awesome. Jesus came the first time and we can look at how the people uh, prepared their hearts. Last week when Pastor Brent and Janice talked about how the people thought about the coming of Christ. It was a beautiful message to, to think about what they actually thought through, what, what was going on in their hearts. And we can explore that and think about how they sort of open their lives and let that inform their lives. And then we celebrate the fact that it actually happened. And now we can stand back and look. We're looking for the second heaven. Jesus is going to come, how that impacts our lives. But, but the question is, what do you do between the spaces of Advent? And when, Ad, when Jesus appears and they can touch him, but then he's gone. Uh, what do we do between now and when he appears again? What, 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 what do we do in between God's appearings, Right. What did those people do before Jesus came the first time? And what are we to do as we await for the second coming? And the the answer really is simple. It's that we're called to live by faith, (laughs) which is pretty sketchy and a gnarly kind of experience, this living by faith. It's like uh, bringing you in this room and pitch black and say, run. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Okay. (laughs) It's not by sight we live. It's by faith. There's a, a text in Hebrews 11 that says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he is, that he exists. In other words, that he's there even when they don't see him or they don't feel him. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he's there and that he rewards people who actually seek him because they believe he's there. You know, it's, uh, if we believe that he actually exists in our lives, even though we don't see him, even though we don't feel him, if we believe that he exists in our lives, we'll seek him. You'll look for something you believe is there, right? My, my son, Michael, when he was just a little guy, he had to be under a year, I was probably eight months old. And um, he wasn't walking. He must have been six months old. But anyway, I, my dad had, a, he had given me a, a, a gold Seiko watch. And, um, and, and so I was, I was wearing that, and he got fascinated. You know how kids get fast. I took it off and gave it to him. And uh, I think something else happened. We did it the next morning. I went back to look for the watch because we were right there in the living room. I could not find that watch. I thought, where's the watch? I mean, I'm looking everywhere. I could not find that watch. I said, it's got to be here. I looked here. I even checked his diaper. I mean, that's how desperate I got. And then when I was looking on the top of the refrigerator where I hadn't been in since we moved there, I thought, okay, I can't find. The minute I thought it's not here, it's lost, I stopped looking. Because you don't look for things you don't believe is really there. The reason many of us don't do much seeking of God because we don't believe he's there. Why would he be? We're bad, we're worthless, we're not that important, not that gifted, cellophane-ish, right, see-through-ish. But what if God really is with us? And what if he is in our lives, even when it's silent and quiet, what if he's in the hidden places, right? Remember Dr. Green's message just a couple of weeks ago where he talks about the God who hides himself. What if that's, what if that's true? That he's all tucked into our lives and wondering if we'll dare to believe that enough to seek him. Sometimes I think we think if we seek him, we earn his presence instead of realizing, no, we seek him because of his presence. 
He's already there, whether we seek him or not. There's a verse in Isaiah 26, 11, it says, oh Lord, your hand is lifted high, but we do not see it, <laughs> right? They don't see it. We don't see even though his hand is lifted high in our lives. In the Old Testament, Jacob, at one point in Genesis claims, surely God is in this place, but I did not recognize it. Wow. What if that's true about your life? What if he's in all of the places that you maybe don't think he is? See, we tend to think as evangelicals, particularly charismatics, that the places where God is is in the miracles. I got that job. Oh God, thank you. I experienced healing. Oh God, thank you. I, you know, I got this provision thing. Oh man, God showed up. But what if he doesn't just show up when he sticks out? What if he's always there? And that what he's looking for us to do is believe it. Believe that he exists. That this is what pleases him. Believing that he exists enough that we seek him. We know the scripture tells us that there are aspects of God's nature, you know, the universe, that reveal God to us. Aspects of his character and, and our nature. When you think about the universe, what do we usually think of? Stars, planets, you know, solar systems, black holes, supernovas, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, most of us never think about space where there's nothing, right? We tend to think about the stuff that sticks out. We don't think about the nothingness of space. And yet scientists tell us that most of the universe is nothing. Space. And, and they, what they tell us, actually, is that this unseen space that never catches our attention, that never seems to, call it, seems to call attention to itself, they tell us that it's what's happening in the space, in between the stuff that's actually holding everything together. That what's unseen, I mean, that's even true on a micro level when you get deeper. Most of us, when we look at it, we look like we're substance, but most of what we are is space. If you would can take all the space out, we, we, you wouldn't see us <laughs> because most of what we are is space. Most of the universe is space, right? In Colossians 1, it says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things created by him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together I mean what if God is in all the spaces of the universe what if God loves to dwell in space more than be the star or the planet or the nova what if God is in the spaces of our lives the advents we talk about celebrate the appearing it celebrates and anticipates how God shows up like a star or God shows up like a planet right where he sticks out but most of what is, is space. This means that all the time when God is not seen, all the places where he's not appeared, doesn't mean he's not right there holding it all together, right? This, this is why last week when uh, Brent and Janice warned us about not judging God by what we see or by what's happening right now is so critical. Think about most of our contact with God now. It's a veiled contact. 
I mean, whether you're, it's a hidden kind of thing. Paul describes it as seeing through a glass darkly. So this morning, you know, I, I sense him in different spaces, like worship space or prayer space. It's sort of faint, but sometimes, and a little dark, but sometimes it's just, you sense it's like extra gravity or something. You, there's something there, you, but it's veiled, but he's there. Or sometimes I sense him in the space where, where I've, I've sinned in some way and I know I've missed the mark in some way and I feel bad and I feel like I, I want to crucify myself. You ever feel like that? And when others sin against me, I certainly want to crucify them. Right? And, and, and somehow in that moment, I say, God, and I come to him and I sort it out with him. And as I'm sorting it out and there's this exchange, my guilt for his forgiveness, that there's something palpable there. There's something present there. It's, 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 it's a little dark, but he's there. I sense that he's there. I sense him when I, when I call on him in my weakness. You know, times through life where I get home or about ready to, ready to walk into a meeting or something, and I'm just a little grumpy. You know, you've had a long day with people, and they've been you know, picking at you like you're in the birds movie. You know, kind of, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just don't want to be nice. And, and what I found out is if, if, if you come into places where you don't want to be a Christian or be a nice person, if you'll just stop and say, God, and just honestly, God, I don't want to be a Christian right now. In fact, I would love to just be mean to people and control. And I'll do it in your name if you would like me to. <laughs> or God, you know, right now I'm very envious of Joe and I'll do it for you. Let me be envious. I'll do it for you or whatever, just being honest with it. It's amazing to me in your honesty of your weakness, how God's sort of, God sort of shifts something in you and you start being something you're not. And so you watch yourself be kind and you're thinking, this isn't me. (laughs) You know, there's something else going on, right? You find that God is in those spaces. That if you seek him, that, that somehow that, that he can help you be what you cannot be. I sense him when we come to this space and the space we call communion. That somehow he's, he's present here. And before we participate, as our closing this morning is participating in communion, let me point out one more thing that, that's disturbing. God wants us to hope for his actual appearing, but he wants us to recognize his presence in the spaces. He wants us to live by faith. He wants us to pursue him and believe that he is with us not just when it's obvious he's with us. There's an incident that happened in the history of Israel that biblical writers pick up on over and over again. And we find an example of it in Psalm 95. Listen to it. It says, come, let us bow down in worship and let us kneel before our maker for he is God. Really interesting. Don't lose some of the um, physical worship. The idea of kneeling, we don't do that much. We don't actually, we don't kneel very much or we don't bow very much to God. But, but, but really bowing and kneeling and lifting your hands, these kinds of things are physical prayers. I was reading about this Orthodox priest who a, a man came to who was very intellectual. He said, I just am having such a hard time with my, with my faith. And the guy told him, the priest told him, he said, well, uh, I think he said 30 times a day. He said, just prostrate yourself before God. So 30 times a day, he would just... Prostrate yourself. Just, just, he said, just for a moment. He said, don't pray. Just prostrate yourself. And after 30 days, he came back and the priest, he the priest, and the priest said, well, how are you doing? He said, oh my gosh. He said, my faith is alive. Sometimes just doing things that reflect 
a heart before God, even if you're not totally connected with it, you just do it, watch what God does. So it says here, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before God, our maker. And we are the people, for he is our God and we're the people of his pasture. We're a flock under his care. Listen to it. God's with you. God's in the spaces. God's in the margins. God's there. Today, if you hear his voice, he says, don't harden your hearts like they did in Meribah as you did that day in Ma- at Massa in the desert. So he refers to this moment and over and over in scripture, this moment is brought up about Meribah and Massa and what they did, how horrible it was. He said, as you, he says, when your fathers tested me and tried me, though they had seen what I did, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray. They haven't known my ways. What did they do? <laughs> so I declared in my anger, you're not going to enter my rest. What heinous offense did they do? Well, let's read it. Exodus 17, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They encamped by the Seraphim. And it says, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water. Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty. The people were thirsty. The people were tired. The people were hungry. The people needed something. And they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take your, hand, your staff in your hand and stru- like you struck the Nile and go and stand there before you at the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock. Water's going to come out for you and the people to drink. And so Moses did it. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? How many times have you asked? I'm not sure the Lord's really with me. I mean, things just aren't going well. I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm sick. I'm hungry. I, I don't know if the Lord's with me or not. I just lost my job. I'm in the midst of a horrible divorce here. They just, the doctor just told me I have cancer. I, is the Lord among me or not? We're standing in front of your home in Moore, Oklahoma. Is the Lord with me or not? See, because we're so oriented to his appearing, we don't believe in the spaces. But God is everywhere where pain is. God is everywhere where good is. God is everywhere where evil is. He's still present, irrespective of it. And what faith is, in between the Advents, is we say unequivocally, he is with me. I'm going to ask the uh, band to come up and those of you that are helping us serve communion, if you'd come up as well. It may seem like he's not, but God is always in the spaces. Do you remember the story in Matthew 25 where all of the people are there, the guys with the sheep and the guys, you know, separating my sheep and goats and the people that were unfaithful, Jesus said. You remember what he said to them? 
you didn't clothe me when I was naked. You didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't give me water when I was thirsty. You didn't visit me when I was in prison. Remember what they said? When were you? When did we ever see you like that? When did we ever see you in prison? When did we ever see you thirsty? When did we ever see you naked? Remember what Jesus said? He said, when you responded to all of these, you responded to me. What he was saying was, you didn't recognize it, but I was with those people. I was in those people who were sick. I was in those people who were naked. I was in those people. I was with them. It was me that was in prison. And then oddly enough, when he tells all the righteous ones, enter into the kingdom. Why? Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you visited me. Right? And what's interesting is they, they said too, just like the ones who were unfaithful, what? When did we ever do that to you? In other words, both the faithful and the unfaithful did not recognize Jesus. But what's interesting is for us, we think particularly charismatics and faith-oriented people, if God was with the sick person, they wouldn't be sick, right? If God was in the hungry life, they wouldn't be hungry. If God was really present with the thirsty, and certainly if God was present with someone who was in prison, they'd get out. Why? Because we don't believe God's in the spaces. God's everywhere. And our faith is to declare he is in my life. Interestingly, if you look at the Eucharist, the church really believed this was this moment was jacked full of Advent thought. Because as Paul talks about it, he says, the night that he was betrayed, he talks about that we do this because we're celebrating his death, we're, we're remembering he came. But Paul also said that when we participate in this, we're proclaiming his return. So somehow in this moment, we're saying he came and he's coming. That's what this moment declares. Not only that, but we're declaring he's come in the presence of bread and cup. That somehow Jesus comes as we trust him as a body. That the bread becomes his body, that the cup becomes his blood. So what does that mean? He's come here with us. He's in the veil of, of the bread. He's in the veil of the cup. But he is here supernaturally and powerfully. So the very story of our lives is wrapped up in Eucharist. That's why the church, see, we're, we're not used to this. We're Protestants. We're not used to the reality that for the whole up, you know, 1,500 years of the church, from the very, you can read this in the second century. Read it in Paul, first century. They had this sense of God being present in this moment. And when they gathered, they always participated in Eucharist. In fact, in the early church would quote Luke 24, that story when Jesus was walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and the scripture says the, that Jesus prevented them from recognizing him. The Lord was with them, but they did not know it. He was in the spaces. He was in the margins. And he explained the scripture to them. And when he sat down with them, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. Deja vu. Communion. And when he did it, the scripture says their eyes were opened and they recognized him and bam, he disappears. And they're just going, whoa, 
And the church began to say very early on, we see him when we didn't see him when we come to the table. And the scripture says when they came back to Israel, to Jerusalem and they said, hey, this just happened. Jesus just appeared. And while they were talking about that communion moment, the scripture says he appeared again in that conversation and said, peace be with you. Listen, this is very pale for we Protestants. It's getting less pale. We need to resource what's ours. And what's ours is something powerful about this meal. That's why we fight for this. That's why we say, please don't reduce this to a little Jesus uh, hors d'oeuvres, a little cracker and juice to remind us that he died in some distant kind of way, but that somehow we listen to Jesus' words when he said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. That we listen to Jesus' words when he says, when we eat and drink of this, we eat and drink of eternal life. This is a meal of eternal life. Paul said, if you eat it unworthily, you'll eat judgment to yourself. This is more than just crackers and juice. In the Old Testament, they had manna that fell supernatural. This is at least as supernatural as that manna. But we don't think that way. We need to repent. When you come this morning, come with humility, with a bowed heart. Come with reverence and don't say, is the Lord with us or not? He is in this meal. Let's stand. In preparing our hearts, let's pray as the Lord taught us to pray. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Go ahead and lift the bread up if you would. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. Lord Jesus, we're trusting you as a people that this bread is becoming for us more than bread. It may be under the veil of bread, but somehow it is becoming the body of Christ. It's your appearing in this moment. You're in the spaces. And so we say to you, Jesus, as if you appeared to us in this moment, you're appearing to us in the bread. And we say, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you'd lift the cup, the same night, the scripture says he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of, my, of the new and the everlasting covenant. It's a cup of your blood. And so, Lord Jesus, we trust you as a people that this cup will become more than what it is, but somehow it will become for us the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we receive that by faith. We trust you that in the veil of this cup, that Jesus, it is you, your very blood, somehow mysteriously and so you're here and we say to you in the blood welcome Lord Jesus Christ let's declare the mystery of our faith Christ has died Christ is risen and Christ will come again let's come and receive the body and blood of Christ Christ